0: Welcome back to another episode of Inside Asia. I'm your host, Steve Stein. And in this week's conversation, we contemplate the risks versus rewards of urban living. Joining me is Daniel Moss, a senior writer and Bloomberg columnist. We spoke from Singapore, a city still gripped in a COVID-19 lockdown. Daniel and I and millions of others have been living a different kind of urban experience in recent months. That prompted a conversation on the future of urbanization and specifically megacities, those urban sprawls with populations of 10 million or more. In the conversation you're about to hear, he points out that what took hundreds of years in Europe has taken only decades in Asia. The reason for that, plain and simple, is economic growth and opportunity. For billions of Asians, the city means jobs, new wealth, and opportunity. According to the UN, 2007 marked the year when more people lived in cities than out of them. Unfortunately, the dream hasn't panned out for many, one in three to be exact. By some estimates, over a billion urban-dwelling Asians still live in slums and abject poverty. The only reason they stay is because their countryside options are even worse. That fact alone should be enough to point the finger at governments. In this region, cities have received the lion's share of resource and investment. It's where you can find the best infrastructure, the best wireless coverage, the most jobs, and if you can afford it, the best housing. Rural communities, on the other hand, have been left to their own devices. For many, even basic electricity and indoor plumbing remains a distant dream. Some attempts, albeit few, have been made by governments to right this wrong. Although if truth be told, investment in outlying communities probably has more to do with political expediency than economic altruism. In China, for instance, third-tier cities in the country's central and western provinces have looked on for decades while coastal seaboard communities received grants and foreign investment that ushered in untold wealth and prosperity. In recent years, remote districts have received more attention, but not near enough. Resentment persists. A more radical experiment was carried out in Myanmar. Its military junta in 1995 decided to move the capital entirely, relocating it 320 kilometers to the north of the traditional center in Yangon. No official reason was ever given, but the result was dismal. It's been called everything from a vanity project to a white elephant. And it proves the point that reshaping a city, no matter how congested or chaotic, is often a better choice than rebuilding one from scratch. I asked Daniel to share with us his thoughts on Asian urbanization and how COVID-19 might encourage a rethink. Daniel Moss, uh, you are Asian economics columnist with Bloomberg. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to be talking about megacities. Are you good for that?
1: Certainly up for that.
0: There's a, there's a, Question which has been percolating about since COVID, which is uh, there's a higher probability of contracting COVID in an urban setting than in a rural setting. And as a result, some people are contemplating uh, post COVID whether or not there would be an opportunity to further distance themselves from cities. Uh, Demographic analysis suggests that that's a bit of a toss up question. There are reasons to remain and reasons to leave. What has some of your recent research revealed for you? Uh,
1: what we've seen uh, since the advent of COVID-19 is a revival of some ideas that were around before the pandemic that never really took off. We're seeing some ideas that were presented that have been shelved because of the enormous fiscal burdens that fighting the pandemic has placed on governments. And there's a broader intellectual question, which is, look, the megacity, uh, of which there are many in Asia, is a symbol of rapid industrial growth and urbanisation uh, since the 1970s. Does that go into reverse? Now, the city is one of the great icons of the tremendous change we've seen in Asia, in which your podcast charts. Does that have to go into reverse because we're asking questions about cities? So all of this was there in the backdrop. You know, anyone who's tried to get around in Manila uh, at rush hour or remembers Jakarta before the subway knows these arguments have been around for a while. They have taken on more of an existential uh, and urgent quality since the pandemic erupted
0: and i guess there's two questions here dan one one is what are the populations propensity to want to remain or to those who are not living in cities to actually pursue a life in the city and then also what are governments now thinking in terms of de- for future development uh, for instance uh, you mentioned jakarta in a recent article and how they had plans to shift the capital of jakarta uh to another location now those uh, plans are on the back burner because of the costs associated um, what other types of developments or what other type of government thinking are you seeing out there that suggests that maybe urbanization isn't everything they were hoping it could be?
1: It's happening in both uh, developing Asia and developed uh, Asia. In the Philippines, uh, there's a program called, quote unquote, Back to the Province, uh, where the national government is trying to incentivize financially for folks to leave the Manila area uh, and go back either to rural Luzon, and Luzon's the main island in the Philippines, accounts for most of the country's gross domestic product, or some of the outerlying islands in the archipelago. Uh, Now, whenever I raise this uh, with people who live in Manila, it's met with something between uh, skepticism and guffaw. So many people are in Asian megacities, not because of, you know, the quality of life or any sort of Brooklyn or Notting Hill uh, type experience because that is where the jobs are. And although visitors may complain about infrastructure, it's a lot better there than in the rural areas. Uh, They're magnets for employment because that is where the jobs are. Uh, in Indonesia, that process has kind of gone in reverse. So last year, uh, some of your listeners may recall, uh, President Jokowi said, "Look, Jakarta—it's just too much. It's sinking. Literally, there are all sorts of problems. We're going to create a brand new capital. You know, instant capital—just add water. And we're going to put it over on the Indonesian side of Borneo. No problem. This will be a great thing." And that was consistent with his view that too much of the nation's wealth and power uh, were concentrated in Java. Now, I was a little sceptical about that, having grown up uh, in an artificially planned city. That was Canberra. Uh, but the government was onto something, and that is <sighs> some cities have become such magnets for employment. You can ask the question, do they really work? So while packing... Large parts of Jakarta up and moving it to Borneo uh, seemed like a drastic solution. It was a solution. Now, unfortunately, uh, the cost of that right now is just too much. Uh, Indonesia can't print rupiah forever. They don't have a reserve currency. There are fiscal constraints there. The president decided a little while ago there were better things to do with $34 billion. So that's been on hold. So the Philippines wants to get people out. Indonesia is like, well, maybe getting people out is not such a great idea. Now, if you jump a little bit to First World East Asia, we talk about Singapore, uh, where you and I both are. Uh, There was a very interesting contribution to a recent conference from the chief executive of HDB, the Housing and Development Board. Uh, erector of those signature high-rise public flats in Singapore. And she thought, well, look, COVID makes us think maybe we should divide Singapore into, you know, uh, a group of mini-Singapores, each of them self-contained, each with their own CBD, each with their own recreational spaces, each with their own F&B cultural scene, And maybe future... HDB buildings need drone parking spaces rather than all these car parking spaces. So, you know, there's a, there's a complexity and a diversity of thought going into this. You know, this is one of the many byproducts, uh, you know, of a pandemic which is supposed to result in a new normal. That's great. But for the urban-rural divide, it's not going to be a uniform new normal, and maybe it won't even be new.
0: So with the suggestion by the HDB head in Singapore to subdivide into a series of hamlets, is, the, is that a primarily a health and safety consideration? Therefore, if you contain and manage people in these hamlets, you won't have the problem of uh, cross-populating and therefore spreading any future epidemics? The context
1: uh, of her remarks were you know, urban planning uh, in the COVID era. Uh, Post-COVID uh, pandemic era, but again, these things don't just appear in a vacuum. You know, serious urban planners have been giving a lot of thought to you know whether the city, and with Singapore, it's existential because the country is the city.
0: Mm. You mentioned before that uh, urbanization has happened faster across Asia-Pacific than anywhere else in the world. Uh, Could you just talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, that's
1: one of the gems uh, contained in a 50-year study of Asia's economy that the Asian Development Bank uh, published in January, uh, just before the pandemic hit. They make a pretty convincing case, Steve, that you know, urbanization is a byproduct of rapid industrialization. So in 1970, only about 20% of East Asian folks uh, lived in urban areas. Uh, that's just under 50% now. By the middle of this century, uh, it'll be about two thirds. Now, what's taken place in this region over that period of time is dramatically compressed. Uh, from what we have seen in other regions. Uh, implicit in that is North America and Western Europe, where the process played out over a couple of hundred years uh, with the Industrial Revolution. That's all been fast-forwarded here. So, you know, do we need to fast-forward a solution? Uh, because it hasn't been a completely unmitigated good. Uh, you know, problems of congestion uh, and livability are real. Uh, so if you go back to the 1970s, this was before the era of the manufacturing supply chains. Uh, you know, agriculture became mechanised. Uh, some genetic modifications to crops meant you could yield uh, greater harvests with fewer people. Uh, it was the era of globalisation that was just starting to get underway. And In the late 70s, China was starting to change as well. So manufacturing jobs came to be concentrated uh, on the fringes of cities, which bulked up those very same cities. Then came the transition to services. You know, and before too long, you had a version of this phenomenon that Richard Florida from the University of Toronto has articulated uh, Mm -hmm. since his 2002 book on the rise of the creative class, which is, you know, cities can spawn... Uh, their own ecosystems. And once you're in them, you know, it's not always easy to sort of unplug from them, Mm. particularly when, uh, you know, you have an absence of infrastructure uh, in the rural areas.
0: You you know, Dan, there's there have been some areas of Asia where resentments have grown between rural and urban dwellers. I know in China, there was a push in the early 2000s to reinvest or increase investment in third tier cities uh, that watched all of this growth and advancement uh, in the eastern seaboard, but weren't gaining any of the benefits except for a few checks or a few cash transfers that were made from relatives that might be living in those areas. Uh, what happened with those plans? And, and is, it, is it even viable in many other parts of Asia at this point to think about creating sub-cities, secondary cities, smaller cities, instead of mega-cities?
1: Well, that's a great question. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you're touching on something that I think is little understood about Asia today, which is that the urban-rural divide which has got a ton of attention uh, in the West since the Brexit referendum uh, and Donald Trump's election. Uh, It's as though there is no urban-rural divide in Asia. It's alive and well. Mm. Um, You know, I saw some of that on reporting trips to provincial Japan and rural South Korea uh, late last year. Now, it hasn't taken on the political manifestation that it has uh, in Western Europe and in parts of the United States, but it's not hard to see that happening. The bottom line, Steve, is I don't know what's happened. I mean, is it a uh, dream fulfilled? Question mark. Uh, you know, has something been lost in translation? Uh, you know, in the Philippines, you'll hear people talk about imperial Manila. Uh, you know. That's not a term that's used generously you know that's a term of contempt uh, you know as cities have become bigger, so much of the decision making is geared toward the industries uh, that thrive in urban areas and on the increasingly you know educated and technologically uh, proficient class that resides there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the phenomenon takes on different, you know, it it is a difference of degree rather than kind Hmm. relative to the urban rural conversation we're having in the US and Europe.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, if you look at some of the other hotspots around the region, and when I mean that, economic hotspots like Bali as a great international tourist destination, um, you know, I'm watching right now discussions being had where, because tourism representing seventy percent of the Balinese economy has plummeted, there's this move by the governor and his advisory team to push people back towards the land, agriculture, creating organic farming doing things where they can optimize on the natural resources and, the, and, and the, uh, the situation that they're in now. Do you feel like there might be other opportunities or other discussions that will be had where there are tourist destinations or where you are? Do you see a plummeting in urban-based employment to go back to the land in ways that could be beneficial for countries in the region?
1: Certainly in terms of the tourist industry, that's a conversation that's got to be had. I mean, we're talking about more than just a little disruption on the margins of that industry. Uh, The inability of people to get out of a country and get into a different one, Uh, even if it's as close uh, to Singapore as Bali. Look, it's a great conversation for the Balinese authorities to have. The problem is all these years, and you have a place there, so you'd be in a better position to judge. I was there for um, a week in March, uh, just as the pandemic was uh, gaining momentum. And I thought, gosh, this is a place without a plan B. Mm. Uh, You know, is this too late to diversify your economic base, I think is essentially the question. And ultimately, that's really a bet on whether this is a structural change in a vital industry that is here to stay uh, or whether this is just like so many of these other things that were said to be unprecedented and paralleled uh, but in reality life moved on from in a couple of years. I mean, you tell me, I mean, has Barley been developing a plan B prior to
0: COVID-19? Not to my my understanding at all. In fact, you know, there's lots of destinations like Bali all across Asia uh, that are now left hanging. Um, There really is, and many of the people who are working in the hotels and F&B industry have retreated to their villages, wherever they may have come from. Um, And as you know, and as you rightly pointed out, the Balinese, the Filipinos, and others have been um, major primary employees of the cruise industry. And now they're all back home, and the way for for that industry to come back. So lots of displacement, lots of migration. um, And and I guess, you know, with all due respect to the Asia Development Bank and their forecasts on two thirds of, you know, the Asia's population living in cities, every organization or business in Asia is rethinking their business models. And I guess I'm just casting a little bit, bit of doubt on whether or not these trajectories will continue and if whether or not the opportunity now exists for us to think about remote uh, operations, remote work. Um, I know it requires bandwidth, of course, and internet connectivity. Some of these markets uh, struggle with that outside of the major urban areas, but that certainly can be remedied with a government intention to do so. So, I guess my ultimate question for you, and I know it's a bit of uh, you know stargazing, but is this enough of a of a of a of a, of a uh, development for governments and populations to fundamentally rethink? how they're living and operating and how to basically offset the high costs of urban living with remote or distant working.
1: The opportunities there, Steve, the question is, is the political will there?
0: Mm. Yeah, talk about
1: that. Again, it's, well, it's not as simple, for instance, as saying, look, we need to reduce Metro Manila or, you know, downtown Jakarta by X million. So you guys, you know, You go to Sulawesi, you folks, you go down to the Versailles. You know, it's not that simple. Are governments prepared to spend on the infrastructure that's required to make the rural areas attractive? Mm. And that's not just a question of fiscal outlays. That's a question of taking on entrenched corporate industrial interests. I mean, the Philippines only has two telephone uh, companies, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, how are you going to build up the provinces so that when you stop paying people to return there, that they actually stay there?
0: Well, I and, guess... You know, you're
1: also you're, you're also... Ta- you've got to be talking about a change in... You've got to be prepared to surrender some taxation power, some revenue power, you, you know, to make regions... Uh, or, you know, second cities, for want of a better term, attractive, people there have to feel they have a say in how they work and play. Uh, so the ideas uh Think Tank and KL hosted a fascinating uh, recent webinar where uh, they talked about a planned urban transit overhaul uh, in Penang. You know, um in uh, northwestern uh, Malaysia. Right now, any local government in Malaysia requires permission from KL to borrow money for whatever purpose. Mm. And historically, unless the state administration is aligned politically with the team that's in power in KL, mm. that money raising ability doesn't happen. Mm. So. For the states to provide, the states or the regions, the provinces, depending on your system of government, I mean, they've got to have the beef there. The national industrial complex, for want of a better term, has to be prepared to
0: tackle vested
1: interests
0: and to let go. Mm. So distributed power being able to push out and have faith that frontline decisions and budgets could be there to support what the provinces or the remote areas are prepared to do for their populations. Is that what you're saying?
1: You've got to make it attractive. And for these provincial centers or second cities uh, to become viable alternatives to the metropolises, There's got to be something there. I mean, there's got to be this kind of, uh, again, to borrow from Richard Clar Richard, um, not Richard Clarida. He's the vice chair of the Federal Reserve. Rich Florida, you've got to uh, to get this creative class virtual circle happening. It's got to be something virtuous there to begin with. Right.
0: Right. Well, I I guess I think back just as as an example of what might be done to the mid-1990s. And when cellular cellular operators were building out and receiving licenses from governments around the region, they were required as part of receiving that license to offer something called universal access, which means that they would have to provide cell coverage in very remote rural areas, which would be loss-making. But that was the commitment they had to make in order to receive you know, a, a permanent or a, a time stamped license. Why couldn't you have a similar arrangement for offering other infrastructure options or other incentives to uh, industrialists and, and companies that are prepared to do that, seeing that there's a growth opportunity in secondary cities if this is done right and executed well?
1: So are you really talking about reversing the sort of intellectual and corporate culture the past couple of decades which has been the state gets out of the way privatization's the way to go Mm. uh and you start going back to a situation where you know okay you want this franchise you want this license that's great you've got to give back uh you know almost like a Marshall plan for the regions Uh, uh look there are worse things to contemplate you know, uh, you know, COVID-19 has not been a great few months uh, for laissez-faire purists. Uh, what, you know what? What's wrong with the Marshall Plan for the regions? If we can't get the organisational, political, philanthropic, uh, cultural ballast behind something like this now, then Steve, you got to ask uh, if not now, when.
0: Well, Dan, there it is, right? And and, and as we've seen with COVID, it has redrawn so many lines, and it's also reestablished uh, the importance, the essential role of government in ways that were probably discarded or undermined, you know, in in recent uh, decades. So if there is a role for government and a role for corporations to cooperate with governments. This would appear to be an interesting opportunity, albeit, you know, a mega uh, uh, undertaking, no doubt. So the
1: whole strand of, you know, thought relating to how businesses operate, how markets operate, the light touch that governments are supposed to use, this has all been part of, you know, the so-called Washington Consensus, uh, which has been on vogue uh, since the 1990s. You know, maybe that has run its course, okay? This idea that you privatise these great state-sprawling bureaucracies that, uh, you know, markets become the primary determinant of desired economic behaviour and that Asian governments model regulatory systems, you know, based on that Western consensus, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, has that run its course? Maybe we need uh, something that's a bit more status.
0: Well, and and, and it's true. And Dan, when I think about this, you know, there's been lots of uh, talk about uh, smart cities and renewable cities and new technologies are going to be applied. I mean, you know, instead of trying to rebuild or refabricate uh, these sprawls that exist in, in places like Jakarta and Manila and elsewhere, why not try to create small, you know, From the design cities from the ground up that have all the accoutrements and all of the uh, the 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 value that you can see in building a city, knowing what we know and having what we have now. So to me, you know, and then you add in 5G and IoT and everything else which they parade. It does feel like an opportunity for a city renaissance if we choose to go down that path. But no doubt, it requires some some. Forward thinking and some innovation and some clever financing in order to demonstrate the possibility. So, we're we're spitballing a little bit here, but I just, I'm kind of surprised uh, in this property weighted markets called Asia that, you know, some of these ideas aren't being paraded or introduced at this initial stage. I'm just not seeing much of it, but the timing would seem to be rather opportune.
1: Well, You know, if COVID-19 has produced a new normal, uh, grown, but I'll use that term for want of a better one, uh, then this is going to be with us for a while. So maybe it's too soon to see a lot of this emerge uh, up into full-blown public debate. I mean, as we're recording this, uh, Singapore is not yet fully open. Uh, Some places in Asia have re-locked down. Uh, To varying degrees. The shock of what's happened to us uh, is still here, it's still very visceral. Uh, At some point uh, the anesthetic is going to wear off Mm. and people are going to be asking themselves, you know, where do we go from here? And you know, uh, these sort of hard-headed existentialist questions uh, are often asked in Singapore because of the little red dot phenomenon, uh, because it has no rural hinterland to speak of, and survival of the city is, in essence, survival of the republic, you're probably going to hear some of those ideas percolate here first, simply because of the low tolerance of risk. Mm. Look, this is um, a harrowing uh, but fascinating time uh, to be here in this region because everything's been compressed. Fundamental assumptions uh, are being questioned. Let's how, see how far this ride goes.
0: Daniel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Steve. That was my conversation with Daniel Moss, Bloomberg columnist specializing in the Asia economy. COVID-19 has been a scare for all of us, but not enough of a scare, apparently, to drive urban dwellers from their high-rise apartments and shopping complexes. City life, so it seems, is still worth fighting for. The bigger question is, what will COVID and our current economic crisis do to influence changes to our cities? As in the Singapore example, will urban planners go back to the drawing board and design urban landscapes that put less emphasis on the proverbial downtown and more emphasis on subdividing, creating standalone neighborhoods or hamlets that draw communities closer together? To some degree, this already exists. In Singapore, there's a Little India and a Chinatown, common features of many big cities in all parts of the world. There are club districts and eating districts, public parks and shopping malls. The bigger the city, the greater the variety. Move to the metropolis from the countryside, find a good job, build a life. If you can tolerate the expense and congestion, then it does beg the question, why leave? To some extent, COVID-19 may have thrown a spanner in the works of urbanization's growth trajectory. It's like the proverbial stone tossed in a lake. COVID causes ripples. Health and safety concerns take center stage. Already, major multinationals are contemplating and activating plans that will significantly shift the nature of work from the office to the home. Distributed workplaces aided by high bandwidth and new communication tools will make the choice easy for some, but not for all. Now for those ripples. Part of the joy of city living is access to food, beverage, and shopping choices. Retail has taken a drubbing. COVID has forced many big brand retailers into bankruptcy, and at the same time, thousands of restaurants and bars everywhere have closed and may never reopen. E-commerce received a big boost, and for many, the joys and convenience of online shopping may forever displace the need or interest of visiting a store. Lastly, what does the future hold for arts and entertainment? In most places, large gatherings, concerts, and public events are still on ice with no immediate plans to reopen. The risk of throwing too many people together at this point is to flirt with a COVID comeback. How will these changes recast the urban landscape? Does it mean that city dwelling becomes less enticing than it once was? All thorny questions, no doubt, and still the poor live in slums and rural infrastructure projects flounder. COVID grants us time for a fundamental rethink. Maybe now is the time to contemplate a new model, where satellite cities become new economic epicenters, giving rural communities proximity to some, if not all, of the advantages enjoyed by their megacity-dwelling brethren. Just an idea. That's it for this week's episode. We thank you for tuning in. What's your take on the urbanization trend? Are megacities an idea whose time has come, or will we see a resurgence in interest as the COVID crisis settles? Let us know what you think. Leave us your thoughts by visiting us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And if you're not a regular listener, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. There are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia, on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, "Coming from the outside on Inside Asia.